Hello, you're listening to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, a product of Lee Enterprises. My name is Chris Lay, and I'm the podcast operations manager for Lee. With Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, we're going to be presenting notable true crime stories as reported by journalists working for the regional newspapers that covered them from the dozens of various Lee Enterprises-owned publications around America. For this first series, we're taking a short drive east of Tulsa, Oklahoma, to learn more about the state's most notorious cold case, the 1977 slaying of three Girl Scouts. What you're about to hear is the second episode in a six-part series, so head back to episode one to start from the beginning if this is the first episode that you're hearing. Given the subject matter for this and presumably just about every story that we're going to document going forward, there are some obvious content warnings to impart, so while everything here would be fit to print in a newspaper, parents are cautioned to give the episode a listen before sharing this with any youngsters. What you're going to hear first is audio from a series of articles written by Tulsa World journalist Tim Stanley and published in 2017 to mark the 40th anniversary of the tragedy. And then you're going to hear a conversation between myself and Tim about his experiences reporting the series so many decades after the initial crime. For now, here's Tim reading Chapter 2, which is titled, I Wanted Her Home. The waking, Betty Milner said, was the hardest part. For many years, even after she could sleep through the night again in peace, there was no defense, no way to steel herself against what the morning brought. Every day it was a struggle, she said. Every day when I opened my eyes, my first thought was that my child was gone. You look outside and the world goes on, the sun shines, the birds sing, and you ask, why? After her daughter Denise's murder, there would be a lot of whys for Milner, each of them, just like that one, unanswerable. But there were also a lot of reasons not to give in to them. And so Milner dug in. She raised her remaining daughter, Kathy, and eventually welcomed another, Crystal. She also bettered her prospects, going from a teacher's aide to a new career as a hospital lab tech. Forty years since her daughter's murder, though, finds one constant for Milner. She still lives in the same house. Leaving just wouldn't seem right, she said. Too many memories. Denise was in a hurry to do everything, said Milner, who when she talks about her daughter can't help laughing. She walked early, she talked early, she wanted to be involved in everything. Gymnastics, tap dancing, singing in the church choir. Between all of it, there were not enough hours in the day for that child. In 1977, Denise, a fifth grader at Burroughs Elementary, added another activity to her growing list. It was her first year in Girl Scouts. It never occurred to me that she would want to go to camp, Milner said, adding that her daughter had never stayed overnight anywhere. But Denise worked hard selling cookies, which earned credits to pay her way. For Milner, this is a point in the story that brings another one of those maddening whys. At the last minute, The day before leaving for camp, Denise had had a sudden change of heart after learning that some friends had decided not to go. She didn't want to go either, she told her mom tearfully. 
Milner encouraged her to go ahead and try it. Forty years later, she still asks herself why, which is pointless, she knows, and just leads to other whys, like why had she let Denise go to camp to begin with? If I hadn't let her go, this wouldn't have happened, Milner said. I still deal with the guilt. It's still in the back of my mind. We never let her go anywhere overnight. Why this time? On Monday, June 13, 1977, and the days immediately following it, the why wasn't important. The question on everyone's minds was who. Three young girls murdered and sexually assaulted on their first night at summer camp. Who could have committed such a horrifying crime? The bodies of Denise Milner, 10, Lori Farmer, 8, and Michelle Gousset, 9, had first been discovered shortly after 6 a.m. Monday by Counselor Carla Wilhite. She was on her way to take a shower when she saw them, about 150 feet from their tent near the base of a tree. Because Lori and Michelle were zipped inside their sleeping bags, she did not see their bodies at first. But Denise was lying on top of hers in plain view. It was obvious she was dead, Wilhite said, though she did not initially recognize her as Denise, the girl who the previous day had made such an impression on her. Unable to make sense of what she was looking at, Wilhite assumed there had been a terrible accident and ran for help. She would return with the camp director and nurse. Only then, she said, did she realize the full truth, that not only was this no accident, there were two other children. Wilhite recalls the moment when it all sank in as one of terrible fear, and she couldn't believe what she found herself saying. Someone came in and killed three of our kids. Lori and Michelle, it would be determined in the official autopsy, died from blows to the head. Denise was also beaten, but died from strangulation by ligature. All three had been sexually assaulted, at least two of them raped. All of which brought up the other big question. How could something like this have happened and nobody heard it? The girls had been attacked during the night while they were sleeping. Much of the attack had taken place inside their tent, mere yards from seven other tents, including the counselor's tents. Surely, in the course of such a violent encounter, there had been noise. For these and other questions, investigators immediately began trying to find answers. And they needed to move fast, they knew. Not only to solve the crime, a vicious sex murderer, as newspapers then termed it, was at large. Until that person or persons was caught, was anyone safe? By the time he started writing about the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders, as they came to be known, Tulsa World State reporter Doug Hicks had covered well over a hundred murder cases, which meant he'd long since mastered a necessary skill, emotional detachment. Basically, when I cover a story, I don't have any emotions. I'm on the story, Hicks said recently. The details of the Girl Scouts case never affected me in what I did. Now, did I think about it later? Yeah, sure I did. When you finally stopped, it was a sad, sad story. As sad as any he'd covered before or would after. I just go back to the families every time, said Hicks, now retired and living in Jinx. That's where my heart is, for those families, the parents. I just felt like they were the real victims. Sherry and Charles Bow Farmer, George Ann and Richard Gousset, Betty and Walter Milner. Hicks came to know most of them well. The children were gone, he said. The parents were all just engulfed in this. But Hicks, the world's lead reporter on the case, still felt a responsibility to the girls. 
If you look back at the stories, not all but many of them, he said, the girls' names are always up high, about the third paragraph, because I didn't want them to be forgotten. I got some criticism over that, but I persisted. Hicks knew from experience how names of victims too often could get lost in the shuffle, especially when a suspect is charged. He didn't want that for Lori, Michelle, or Denise, he said. The name that would come to dominate headlines in the case wasn't made public until June 23, 1977. That was a full 10 days after the crimes. During that time, investigators had scoured the woods for clues, followed up leads, and conducted hundreds of interviews. Most of it came to nothing. But just when it looked like all the effort was destined for frustration, Mays County District Attorney Sid Wise called a news conference. A suspect, he said, was being charged with the murders. He was 33-year-old Gene Leroy Hart. A Locust Grove native and Cherokee Indian, Hart was already familiar to authorities. A convicted rapist and burglar, he was a two-time prison escapee and had been on the run for four years since his second escape from the Mays County Jail. Now, in addition to his previous convictions, the sentences for which totaled 300-plus years, he was facing three first-degree murder charges, Wise announced. As for evidence, the DA declined to say much, only that items found in a cave close to Camp Scott had been connected to Hart, who was believed to be hiding nearby. Advantageous to Hart in this, Wise added, was that he was an expert woodsman and had many family members, including his mother, living in the area. So it began. With the conclusion of that news conference, the manhunt that would go down as the largest in state history was officially underway. The hunt for Hart, fanning out for miles through tick and snake-infested hill country, would involve no less than an army of searchers, both law enforcement personnel and civilian volunteers, and also include dogs and aircraft. One of the most visible among the searchers was Mays County Sheriff Pete Weaver, whose weathered face under his white cowboy hat became a familiar sight on nightly newscasts. Looking as if he'd stepped right out of an old Tom Mix Western, Weaver, a tall, rangy, tough-jawed lawman who delivered folksy quips in a slow drawl, led groups of volunteers through the rugged terrain. As much ground as the searchers covered, however, and with all the resources dedicated to it, the manhunt was not able to get a fix on its quarry. The days turned into weeks. If Hart indeed had been in the area, now he was nowhere to be found. Just who was Jean Leroy Hart? Outside of his criminal history and the physical description appearing almost daily in media reports, five foot ten, weighs about two hundred, black hair, brown eyes, not much was known. Not much outside of Locust Grove, anyway. But the picture of Hart that emerged as news reporters descended on the town of approximately 1,500 residents seemed strangely at odds with what he was accused of. As then-Superintendent Leonard Yarborough put it, and many others echoed, Hart, a former football star at Locust Grove High School, just wasn't the kind of kid you would have thought who would have turned out bad. One-time coach Roger Morris went even further, calling Hart, who had contributed at fullback and other positions for the Pirates, the best boy I ever coached. Off the field, former classmates seemed to agree. Hart was a quiet, polite, good-looking boy. But whatever image he had projected in high school, Hart's life from there had taken a dark turn. The real trouble came in 1966. 
Hart, 22 at the time and working for a Tulsa steel company, was arrested and accused of abducting two pregnant women from a Tulsa club and raping one of them. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to three concurrent 10-year prison terms. Paroled after 28 months, Hart would be arrested again in Tulsa in 1969. This time, charged with four counts of first-degree burglary, he pleaded not guilty. He was found guilty and sentenced to a maximum of 305 years in prison. That checkered past notwithstanding, from the time Hart was announced as the main suspect in the Girl Scout slayings, he had his sympathizers, and they would only grow in number over time. Many in Mays County doubted Hart's guilt. He was more victim than anything, others added. The authorities' go-to scapegoat when anything went wrong, a handy suspect. Hart's mother, Ella Mae Buckskin, told reporters that a vision from God had confirmed for her that my boy didn't do it. She added that Sheriff Weaver wants to frame him because he don't like Indians. The idea that Hart was being targeted because he was an Indian struck a chord with some. Indian activists spoke up for him. Other sympathizers, while agreeing that Weaver had a personal grudge against Hart, believed it was because he'd shown the sheriff up, escaping his jail twice. Those escapes, former journalist Mike Wheat believes, had helped create an aura of mystery about Hart. He had become this folklorish kind of character, a local legend, said Wheat, who covered the case for the prior Jeffersonian. And like some kind of phantom, he seemed to materialize at random. Locals were regularly saying they saw Hart here or there, at the county fair or somewhere, Wheat said. And adding to that aura now was something else. Rumors that Hart had sought and was under the protection of tribal medicine men. This explained not only his elusiveness, many believe, but other strange happenings in and around the manhunt, like the deaths of two prized search dogs. As the summer of 1977 advanced, Hart hysteria had the region in its grip. The fugitive's name and face popped up everywhere in the media. Only ten feet away, Farmer thinks he saw Hart, proclaimed one Tulsa Tribune headline breathlessly. At banks throughout northeastern Oklahoma, reward funds were set up in hopes someone would provide information that might lead to Hart's capture. Thousands of dollars rolled in. From as far away as Florida, people were raising money to contribute. At the top of its front page, August 3, 1977, the Tulsa World addressed an open letter to Hart. It urged him to surrender. Offering to provide reporter Doug Hicks as a facilitator, the letter included Governor David Boren's personal guarantee to use the power of his office to ensure Hart's security and a fair trial. The letter was prompted by Hicks, who had met at a secret location with Indian activists claiming to be in touch with Hart. I really thought that Hart was probably nearby, within a drive, Hicks said. We thought the letter was worth a shot, but it came to nothing. Later that month, Boren himself would meet with the investigators to keep abreast of progress and to ensure cooperation from the state. I never had any doubts we'd catch him. We just had to win once. He had to win every day, recalled Dick Wilkerson, at the time the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation's chief inspector over investigations. There were too many good people out there working, he added, for it to end any other way. As the weeks continued to pass, though, that optimism seemed less and less justified. The reported sightings and leads slowed to a trickle. Eventually, the search for Hart was scaled back. Media interest waned. 
But just when it seemed like Hart's name had disappeared for good from the headlines, suddenly it was back in big, bold type. On April 6, 1978, ten months after the murders, the manhunt that had for so long captivated Oklahoma residents ended at a small tar paper and wood shack in the Cookson Hills of eastern Cherokee County. Briefed by phone that Hart was there, it was Wilkerson who gave the order. My exact words were, go ahead and take him. Don't kill him unless you have to, but he can't get away. Acting on a tip, OSBI agents converged on the site, which was home to a man named Sam Pigeon. There they found and arrested Gene Leroy Hart. In the end, it was anticlimactic. Later, Pigeon and William Lee Smith, members of a society of traditional Cherokee medicine men, would be charged with aiding Hart. On hand that night when Hart was brought to the Oklahoma State Penitentiary, Hicks remembers his first glimpse of the long-sought-after mystery man. Cuffed and in chains and with an OSBI agent to either side, Hart kept his gaze fixed on the ground and said nothing. Besides making certain I got the photo, I was struck by his appearance, Hicks said. Hart, wearing a tank top and cut-off jeans, was out of shape, flabby. The former high school athlete appeared to have missed few, if any, meals during the long search, he said, recalling the two agents' tight holds on Hart's fleshy upper arms. Beyond that, Hicks didn't get much of a look. Almost as quickly as they'd emerged from their car, Hart and his escorts were gone from sight, swallowed up by the prison's old stone walls. It was a moment for which a lot of people had been waiting, especially the Milner, Doucet, and Farmer families. Finally in custody was the man who, according to authorities, was responsible for their daughter's murders. Now they could at least hope some answers were at hand. As relieved as she was at the news of the capture, Betty Milner had no illusions. Her daughter Denise wasn't coming back, and nothing she knew was going to change that. Still waking every morning to visions of her daughter's face, Milner kept playing certain scenes over in her mind like of Denise in the kitchen, making breakfast for the family. It was her own idea, in one of many ways she was stepping up to help her mom, who, by the summer of 77, was divorced from her father, Walter, Milner said. She had started getting up early every morning to do that. Then, a work day came when Denise wasn't there to make breakfast. I felt this sadness, Milner said, of waking on Monday, June 13th, and remembering Denise was at camp. I wanted her home. That feeling hadn't gone away when later in the morning, at school where Milner, a teacher's aide, was working summer classes, someone came to bring her to the principal's office. Her mind is hazy on the details, like who was present and who gave her the news, but not on the words. They told me Denise is dead, she and two other girls. I asked if it was an accident. In my mind, I could accept an accident. Then they told me that she'd been beaten to death. Milner felt as if she too had just absorbed a blow. I felt this fear. It was extreme, a fear I couldn't account for. I couldn't explain it. Thoughts of her other daughter, Kathy, flashed in her mind. What was going to happen to her, she said. How could I protect her if I couldn't protect Denise? What you just heard was the second of six articles written in 2017 by Tim Stanley for the Tulsa World, as read by the author. 
After a short pause, we're going to go to a conversation between myself and Tim about the article that you just heard, which, along with the rest of the series, can be found on TulsaWorld.com, presented with incredible new photos alongside images from the newspaper's archives. Links to those and any other relevant content can be found in the show notes. So yeah, so that was episode uh, two, the second part of the article. I'm here with Tim Stanley, whose voice you heard reading it and who wrote it. And one of the first questions I have, the, the article is structured in an interesting way where you start present tense with Betty Milner and then you go backwards in time through the the manhunt and the, the murder and then actually introduce Gene Leroy Hart and then go back into his childhood and then move back up through. This basic framework of starting in the present and focusing on one of the families, one of the girls and, and, and their families um, that was by design, uh, which I guess probably obvious, but I thought, you know, going into this, something that I really wanted to do throughout the series, I mean, because, you know, there are a lot of details to this case. There are a lot of characters, you know, and we, we, had, to, we had to scale that back even to just really the main players, just, you know, so it'd be workable for us as a you know, a news series, but yeah, so many people, so many things happen. It's very easy to lose sight of the people I think are, who are at the heart of this, obviously the families um, who lost their daughters, you know, in, in these, these terrible crimes. So yeah, I, uh, we, we introduced folks to Betty Milner briefly in the first story and, uh, and then to, uh, of course, her daughter, Denise, who who subsequently, you know, becomes one of the victims. And so I wanted to come back, you know, with Betty and Denise to start this one off. Again, my intention, I think, is really to keep, keep us coming back to them. So while we're going to go forward and we're going to talk about the case, you know, in more detail and, and how that sort of unfolds, through the first weeks of, of the investigation and the subsequent manhunt. Um, I just want to, I, I want to in doing that always, always, always uh, bring us back to, you know, the people at the heart of it, not ever let them get lost in the shuffle, so to speak of facts. You'll notice that we, we do that. That's how we conclude this story too. After we bring everybody, you know, to the conclusion of the manhunt, and when uh, Gene Hart is is finally in custody, what do we do there? I, oh, I, I just thought it was important to end. Okay, wh- why are we doing this? Who are we really, what is this really about? Okay, let's bring it back there. Let's remind people of the families who, you know, were really, really in the middle of this and having to live this, you know, we, we condense all this, this real history and, and put it into an easy, easier to just format. You know, the people involved had to live this out one day at a time, uh, one hour at a time, really. You kind of mentioned Doug Hicks, one of the journalists, and that this was kind of a variation on a technique that he was using to convey the story and keep it grounded was 
to make sure that the victims' names were always, you know, in the the first or second graph somewhere. Absolutely, uh, Doug did do that. And going back through his stories, yeah, you know, always the names. You know, he made he told me, yeah, that he made a point, you know, as often as possible. And there's no telling how many stories that Doug ultimately wrote on this case because I mean, he was there from the beginning, and this thing dragged on. I mean you know, through the, the manhunt, the court, uh, the court proceedings, you know, preliminary hearing and a trial. Well, Doug was part of all of that and generated an unbelievable amount of copy. But in all of that, you know, he, he said that he always tried to get the girls' names in there and to get them up high. It says a lot about Doug. I, I didn't know him well before this. In fact, I didn't know him at all. Um, but we also introduce our readers in this story to another reporter, Mike Wheat. He is one of two or three interviews that I think are, are completely critical to this whole series working like it did. In fact, Doug and Mike are going to be, they're going to, you know, um, they were both there from the beginning for their respective papers. Doug for the Tulsa World. Mike Wheat was with uh, a small weekly paper prior Oklahoma. So kind of the hometown paper there in Mays County, you know, where these events unfolded. Um, but they both bring unique perspectives. Mike, in particular, the reason I found him and ultimately tracked him down, <laughs> I saw just a, a random reference in some one of our clip files that Mike Wheat, reporter for the prior Jeffersonian, that was the name of the paper, uh, was actually on the scene uh, that morning at Camp Scott uh, when the bodies uh, were found. He was one of the first people there, maybe the first member of the media. I saw that somewhere and I'm like, you know what? I got to find this guy. I remember calling him on the phone and I, I said, uh, are you the Mike Wheat who used to write for the uh, prior Jeffersonian? He said, yep, that's me. And he went from there. He told me, when I told him what I was working on. Yeah, he, he didn't hesitate. You know, what, what he ultimately adds, you know, I think it's critical to the series. Yeah, a big, a big uh, hat tip to both those guys. They are veteran journalists, both of them, you know, out of the business now. They're retired. Uh, but they, uh, having been there from day one, um, you know, they followed it as closely as anyone. One of the things that stuck with me was you have a quote from Doug uh, where he's talking about, you know, the difference between detachment and attachment uh, as, as a journalist. And that made me think about the last conversation that you and I had, you know, where, where you mentioned how you think of journalism as having a lot of empathy baked into the DNA of the job. Where does that put, you know, the detachment versus the attachment? I'm sure those are, uh, you know, balls that you have to be juggling at all times when you're reporting a story like this, where you want the objective facts, but there's also, you know, so much emotional things that, you know, need to be, be covered and presented as well. Man, I've been in this business, you know, for over 20 years and, uh, that's, that's a, that's a difficult line to walk, but yeah, I doubled down on that as far as I, I think, and I think maybe it's more critical in this day and age than it ever has been. Um, but I think, you know, we have to be part of what we do as journalists is to be in the business of empathy. And it's not so much, me being empathetic for the subjects I write about, but 
even though I think that's necessary, but I think it's more about um, creating empathy in our readers, helping our readers to step into the shoes of other people who may be like them, who may not be like them, but to live life, to experience things as, you know, other people have or other people do. Um, I think that's one of the big things we're missing in the world uh, at this moment. I think we could use a lot more empathy. Um, now, how, you know, how do you, as a journalist, do you do that and and maintain some kind of professional distance? I, you know, I don't know. I think I've been able to do it, but I don't know that there's a formula. Everybody in this business who, you know, who writes or for photography, whatever you do, you have to you have to figure that out for yourself. But I would say I think it's critical. I think it's critical for people to be able to come to stories and, you know, not only just get the facts, but be able to experience life and gain some kind of understanding of the people they're reading about. You know, I think that's one of the areas that this series succeeded in. If if I can go by the feedback that I got at the time it came out and, and even now, I I think people gained a much deeper understanding of, of what it was like to be in the shoes of, you know, the farmer family, uh, the Milners, uh, the Greek Bays, what it was like to be in the shoes of a Doug Hicks or a Mike Wheat, who both of those guys had to go in at home at the end of the day after covering all this stuff and then be family men. Mike will talk about that some in a future story that uh, that night after he, uh, you know, covered the case for the first time that day, the day it all broke, he went home and, um, you know, he was just had a baby. He was uh, bouncing his baby on his knee and, and just trying to figure out, trying to comprehend everything that he had just seen and, and experienced that day. I mean, you've definitely, you know, forefronted the empathy from a, a journalistic standpoint uh, on, you know, the, the victims, the families of the victims. And, you know, you mentioned you know, Doug Hicks and Mike Wheat, the journalists. But, I mean, you also, you know, the main character of, of this article that we haven't talked about too much yet is Jean Leroy Hart, who there's an empathy, I think, in in the way that you you frame him, at least so far as right now, where we're at in the story. And hearing about his uh, adolescence and, you know, where he was on the football team and people seem shocked that he could have possibly been uh, wrapped up in this. You know, we do we do know a lot of things about him. I will also say that even today, you know, 40 plus years later, he still is in a lot of ways an enigma. But, you know, some of the things that we do know. You know, he was a local guy. I mean, he grew up in the area, Rogers uh, Grove. Another thing that you have to I have to understand about him, and it, it's going to be critical the way this story plays out, is he was a Native American, member of the Cherokee tribe. Uh, for those you know not in Oklahoma, you may not be aware, but uh, you know there are several tribes that have their headquarters in this state. Uh, the Cherokee tribe is headquartered in Tahlequah. That's a very large tribe, has a national membership. This is Native America very much. And uh, so you had a lot of folks with uh, tribal ties. Hart was certainly one of those. And uh, yeah, like I said, that's going to be a factor in, in some of this. He was also, you know, by this time in his life, you know, he was uh, also a convicted rapist. 
and he had some other uh, convictions for, uh, I think, property crimes like burglary. He was also, he had escaped twice from custody at this point, and he'd been on, on the, you know, on the run for, you know, more than a year at the time of this crime. But he's a hard guy to being so far removed in time and having had him die when he did, he just didn't leave a lot of information. And and he's not available anymore to, you know, to talk to him about any of these things. So, you know, a couple of things that come to mind here as we began, you know, to bring him into the story, questions that people will ask is, well, this guy, you know, he was, he's been on the run all this time. Why, why had authorities not made a greater effort to bring him back in, the Mays County Sheriff's Department in particular? You know, and that's that's a fair question, and they would be, you know, roundly criticized. Because, frankly, after his second escape, um, they had not given real serious pursuit to him. I think they may differ on that. They may say, I, the point being, he, he moved around a lot. He stayed in the woods. He had many friends, family, sympathetic people that helped him out. He would have been a difficult guy to catch. But uh, they really didn't do much. Now, what the sheriff said at the time, and it's it's understandable, it's a big county, and they are the law enforcement agency for that entire county, and they just don't have the time and resources to devote to one. In other words, if they can't catch him pretty quick, um, it's something they just have to do when they can, and that didn't happen. In the article, uh, it's mentioned that that he was the the phrase in the in the article is under the protection of tribal medicine men yeah this would have been well into the manhunt itself which went for 10 months i believe until they found yeah, that was 10 months and what i was talking about here was more of the period that he was at large prior to these crimes he was pretty much known to be in and around that area and I think we, we mentioned in there that he would just turn up in different places. People would say, oh, look, there's Gene. You know, he had kind of become kind of this, this legendary figure who would appear um, and disappear in that area, kind of almost tweaking law enforcement's noses, you know, in the process. Here's this guy that everybody knows is supposed to be, you know, in jail, but they can't ever put their hands on him. But this is where the, the, the legend of Gene Hart if I can use that expression, kind of begins to develop. You know, he's someone, I want to say this too, because in one thing that authorities got criticized for, and, and you know, maybe rightfully so, but they've been accused of zeroing in on him from day one and of getting tunnel vision, you know, early on in the Girl Scouts case. I will say this, if that may be true, um, they will say that's not true. They will say they interviewed uh, hundreds of people, you know, but he's he's someone who immediately would have been on their radar after this. And he is certainly someone, you know, that should have been at the top of their list to talk to. He was known to be at large in the area. Um, his boyhood home, which we mentioned in the article, I think, it, it's no longer standing, but it's not far from the camp. Um, these woods are his stomping grounds. He knows them better than anyone. And he also has a history of sexual violence. 
So he, knowing that he is in and around that area, he absolutely would be someone you as an investigator would want to talk to first. Of course, you see the rub there. Uh, you know, he's already a fugitive. So he, at the same time, has a powerful incentive not to talk to the police. I mean, even if he's innocent, you come forward and say, well, here's what I was doing. You know, I, I wasn't there. But you, you come forward, you go back to prison for your earlier crimes. So in his mind, I'm sure it's better to lay low. I do think that, you know, they were right to definitely look at him early on and and try to eliminate him. That's what you do. You, you go, you try to eliminate suspects. And uh, I think they found when they started looking at him that they could not eliminate him. There are still efforts being made with DNA evidence, new technology and, you know, scientific improvements with, with DNA evidence. But were there any other suspects or was he, or, or, you know, were there, were there others that he was one of many? You know, I think they looked at, there were other people that they definitely checked out early on. They checked out surrounding property owners. There was a, there was also a Boy Scout camp uh, down, uh, just down the road from the Girl Scout camp, uh, which was in session at that time. Um, I mean, they checked into some of the boys. And this may be something we need to talk about in, in a later episode, but there are, there are some other people, you know, who have been um, suggested as strong candidates for having been involved in this. But uh, I, this might not be the best place to go into that. And how much these people were on law enforcement's radar at the time of the crimes, I don't know. I know that he was at the top of their list. We can definitely say that. Given his history, he's somebody that they definitely wanted to rule in or rule out. And, you know, we can rule them out. We can move on to the next person, but they couldn't do that. Uh, so if that's if that's tunnel vision, you know, maybe they they had that. But I do think that there were other uh, obviously other people that they were uh, talking to. And uh, he was just uh, such an obvious candidate that he kind of stood out for better or worse. Obviously, um, you know, it would uh, they would be the authorities would be criticized for that and still are, you know focusing, seeming to focus too much on him at the beginning. But they, you know, they will argue that they followed every lead. And, you know, there were dozens of people involved on the ground, boots on the ground, uh, investigators in the early days. Uh, and they, they were getting hundreds of leads. But, uh, yeah, he definitely was a focal point from very, very early on. And regardless, I mean, you mentioned it in, in the article, but... I mean, the things that he had legitimately been convicted of and was a fugitive from, was it like some 300 years, the grand total he, he had racked up? I mean, it, it was, you know, multiple lifetimes worth. Yeah, he, which, I mean, you know, that's another incentive for him not to get caught again, because he knows it's life. Or worse. Yeah. You know, one of the questions that people always ask about this case, um, especially if they're uh, outside looking in is they're mystified why Jean Leroy Hart generated so much sympathy from certain segments of the population. And that, that was mystifying to me too at first, because I mean, even if he's not guilty, even if he's not involved in the Girl Scout slayings, you know, given his recent criminal history, I mean, that would suggest that he's not a good guy. I mean, he is a convicted rapist. 
So I think it's puzzling to people about why so many people were so sympathetic for him. And what I've learned about that, you know, for what it's worth, I, you know, I think generally the heart sympathizers kind of fit into two categories and they are, they would be the people, the residents of Mays County, you know, his home County and, and then and specifically hometown of Locust Grove. And then the other category would be the members of the uh, native American community. And obviously you can have overlap with those. Again, this is Oklahoma. Uh, a lot of the folks in Mays County uh, have native American ties, just like they do pretty much every other County, but those two basic categories. And I, you know, I think in the hometown, I, I think it's kind of easy if you've ever lived in a small town or small community. I mean, you know, the, the people you grow up with there, the people that you live with, you tip, typically, you tend to think of them in a positive light. Um, you want to see the best in them. I mean, because uh, they're one of one of us, so to speak. I think I get I get the Locust Grove thing. Uh, Hart was from there. Uh, he had many many family members, you know, in, in and around that area. And you know, again, he uh, he grew up there. He was a hometown boy. The football angle is kind of interesting. Uh, I don't want to go off into that too much. But when you go back and you, you look at the old articles, it's an angle that got played up a lot <laughs> early on is a local football hero uh, wanted in uh, Girl Scout slangs. You'll see things like that. This local football hero, local football star. Yeah, he played football. Uh, was he a hero star? Probably not. Um, he, he was definitely a contributor to the Locust Grove team. He played both ways like a lot of guys do uh, in high school football, particularly a small town. Played some fullback, I think, on offense. Played on defense. Now he was he was a good player, but you know that, that's something that the media kind of seized on uh, that he was uh, like the hometown hero. Uh, that that's probably a bit much, but um, you know he did. Uh, interestingly, uh, he was good enough. He did get a one scholarship offer, I think, from a small town in Kansas. Uh, he did not take them up on that. It's one of those things where you wonder if uh, maybe we had gone that direction, uh, some things might have turned out differently. But uh, I think he did. He did not. He ended up getting married pretty quickly after high school and uh, had a kid, and things started to go south for him real, real quick. But all of that to say, I kind of get the hometown thing. I, I do. Um, you think you know? You think you know the folks in your town better than anyone, and 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 so I, I think. The Native American angle is is a little more complicated. Yeah, the Native American angle is one that I feel like is, like you mentioned to outsiders, is harder to understand, um, or at least just to have 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 a contextual footing. I think, especially with exactly the the, the current state of the way that police uh, are seen by you know, communities of color. I think we can definitely talk about that. And that is a factor here. I do want to say just, and this is going to be my two cents, which most of this is. I, I'm not an authority or an expert on this case. A lot of people have studied it for years. Another factor in how he was perceived, I think, in his own community and, you know, even beyond 
let's you know, let's think about what he did because this is something that uh, um, you know we just kind of play pay lip service to in the article. We don't go into um, a lot of detail about his previous crimes. I mean, his rape convictions were uh, for two women that he picked up at a bar. And if you read the old news articles about their testimony, it's not pretty. I mean, these these were brutal crimes. Hart's contention was that that it was consensual. But, I mean, you can't read the articles and not think that these were rapes when you hear their testimony. Now, here's what I would say about that, um, about him being a convicted rapist. I, and it's, again, this is total speculation, but I think attitudes about rape have changed over the years. Um, And I think, and when this happened, these crimes, we're talking late 60s, early 70s, I don't think in that era that rape was viewed in quite the same light as it now. I want to emphasize, I'm not saying it wasn't taken seriously, but I do think too often victims were blamed or at least, you know, considered maybe equal partners in the offense. The old, oh, well, you know, she let him on. Um, what did she expect kind of excuse? You know, I think that existed. I think it still exists. I think we've come a long way. You know, obviously the last three or four years, you know, with the Me Too movement, a lot of things I think have changed maybe about how people perceive some of these things. But, you know, 50 years ago, I think it was a little different. And so I think also there were, well, I think there were people who thought that Hart's rape charges uh, were trumped up, um, exaggerated, and that the women probably, uh, you know, they were uh, involved in it more than they would admit in, in what happened. Now, part of that is because Hart would claim that. But given that I think attitudes about rape were a little different then, I think that might explain, you know, why people, some people who sympathize with Hart maybe didn't take the rape conviction so seriously. And then the other stuff was like property crime. Nothing, I mean, to hear you tell it, and I don't know the details of it, but it sounds like the the original rape conviction had an element of of brutality to it, you know, exceeding, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But it still doesn't seem like this was necessarily, I mean, the idea of, of three children being murdered is. I mean, a lot of people would, would say that. Yeah. How do you go from that to this? That's something we can talk about too, and I think maybe maybe it'd be more appropriate in a future. And it's also it's, it's it's tough to talk about again, just because there's there's so much conjecture there that it's, um, you know, from a journalistic standpoint, you know, it's difficult to check out and validate uh, any of those things from any evidence. But you know, back on the um, you know people uh, people outside of Oklahoma. And understanding the Native American community, you know, that's uh, something we can say a couple of things about because he definitely had a lot of sympathizers among Native Americans. Um, Not all of them, certainly. And, you know, I'm sure many would take issue uh, with me saying that there were a lot in support of him, but he was Cherokee in the Cherokee tribe, definitely. uh, And we will interview. you know, in a future story, uh, the, the guy who was the prin- tribe's principal chief at that time and get his thoughts on this. So I won't I won't go into that too much now. 
raw swimmer because the tribe actually uh tribal council did help pay for some of his defense arts defense and we'll talk more about why um, and what that means but i think big picture here um you can't understand this case unless you understand the era and the historical context this was very much the age of activism i mean beginning in the 1960s and continuing into the 70s you had many many minority groups who were organizing for the first time and demanding change and they were defending their rights and that was true of of native americans i mean and so hearts cause was taken up you know by some of some among the Native American activist community. And I'm thinking specifically of one group uh, who we do mention in the story called AIM, uh, capital A-I-M, which stands for American Indian Movement. You know, it's something that's interesting. And again, for those not living in Oklahoma, the investigators and law enforcement officials that, who worked this case, many of them were also Native Americans, uh, had tribal ties. And many of them would, you know, emphasize that later in defending how this case was handled um, and in defending against, you know, the charges or the charge that they were biased against natives. They're like, wait a minute, we're Native American too. But I think what AIM and what uh, a lot of the American Indian activists were trying to address at that time, not just in Oklahoma, but nationwide. Now, we wouldn't have used this phrase at the time, but it's one we know well now and that is systemic racism i think their their concern was systemic racism specifically in the american justice system so while many involved on both sides in this had tribal connections the issue for aim was not the individuals but the system you know which they would argue is inherently racist and had a history of producing negative outcomes you know for native americans so for them, Hart was just the latest example of this. And so they naturally kind of rallied um, around him. I think what well, we, we even, when we do mention this in there, I think it's in this story. Uh, one of the uh, activists, I think Doug Hicks actually interviewed some of them. And uh, as I recall, he had to, he, he went to, they took him out to a place. You didn't name any names. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, one of them, uh, I think we quoted as one of the activists, what, when they looked at Hart, what they saw was, quote, an old Indian boy running scared, unquote. In other words, Hart represented a scenario for them that they had seen too many times before, a history repeating itself. And, uh, you know, another uh, a Native American man who's got on the wrong side of the justice system unfairly in their minds. So they, when you start to understand a little bit of that context, you can begin to at least understand some of the sympathy, I think, among Native Americans for Hart and how among maybe these activists, he became almost like an anti-hero, you know, in some larger drama. I think that context is critical to really understanding this entire case and um you know why uh native americans were if they weren't sympathetic towards him they were at least ambivalent in some respects because they they had seen so many similar 
scenarios before and uh, you know assumed rightly or wrongly that this was just another example of, of a Native American man you know being uh, you know pursued in an unfair and unjust system. I mean we're talking about a, a culture and, and, and a community you know that has been I mean you mentioned systemic racism, but we're also talking about centuries of disenfranchisement. Exactly. If any group has a reason in this country not to trust the authorities, it's Native Americans, given their history. So there, there's that layer to it. So you can see that this is, it just gets to be complicated in what you're dealing with here, because there's so many, you know, different layers to this. Or at the very least, that people who were sympathetic to Hart had a context on which that made sense. Exactly. And again, see that if you're just looking at this from the outside, that can be very puzzling. But when you start to understand a little bit of the context, yeah, it, it makes more sense. You know, it's just it's part of this story. Yeah. So that definitely gets us to the next article in the series, which is all about the trial, where I guess, you know, the, the circus, so to speak, comes to town. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good way to describe it. <laughs> I mean, so much about this case was circus-like, and, and that includes something that we didn't get to go into a lot, just, and that's the preliminary hearing itself, the one that preceded the trial. Uh, it was the longest preliminary hearing in state history, and it had its own kind of circus-like atmosphere. But we can talk about that a little more next time um, as we get into the, uh, the uh, trial and, and court proceedings. Thanks for tuning in to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles. We hope you've enjoyed the episode. There's a lot more where that came from just over the horizon. So make sure that you're subscribed to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. As I said earlier, there are a ton of incredible additional resources that you can explore on TulsaWorld.com, which I'll have links to in the show notes. The show was produced, recorded, and edited by me, Chris Lay, with tremendous thanks to Tim Stanley and the rest of the team at the Tulsa World for the work they put in reporting this series in 2017. For Lee Enterprises, I'm Chris Lay, 